So we're going to get our feet wet today, and it's going to be good to, to get back into that gospel. Matthew chapter 19, let me begin reading in verse 1. It says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And so I, I'm sure that you don't remember a lot of this because it's been a while. We, we've been uh, actually looking uh, at a summertime series in the book of David. But just as we kind of come back into the Gospel of Matthew, we see that Jesus is concluding his Galilean ministry. Okay, And that's where he spent the majority of his time in public ministry. All the way back in Matthew chapter 4, he had started this and now marks a shift. He leaves the Galilean ministry and he begins heading south, slowly moving towards Jerusalem. He knows that his time has not yet come, but it's drawing closer. And we know that Jesus was aware the whole time that he was here on this earth that he was to be the savior of the world, that his mission was to suffer, to die, and to rise again. And so here, he is moving towards Jerusalem slowly but surely, and he is preparing himself for the cross. But at this point, as he moves from northern Galilee, he crosses over the Jordan River, and he enters the region of Perea. Now, keep that in your minds, okay? The clouds uh, flock to him, excuse me, and he, as he always has been doing uh, throughout his ministry, he begins healing them, okay? It's a mark and an authentication of him being the Messiah. And in verse 3, let's look at it. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. Now, the word test actually means to trap. It has the idea of a hunter's snare. We've studied the Pharisees many times already in our Gospels, and we know that they've been following Jesus, not because they are sure that he's the Messiah, not because they support his ministry, right? Not because they're awed by his healing and the many good things that he's doing. No, they're dogging his footsteps in order to stop him. They hate Jesus. They're threatened by him. He's not one of them. And these religious leaders have been scheming to trap Jesus so that they can end his ministry. And so they ask a question. And I want you to look at the next slide. Verse 3, here's the question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Let me ask you, let, let me say this. This is not an honest, innocent question from someone who genuinely wants to know what Jesus is thinking. Okay? This is a loaded question, a carefully, cleverly crafted question to trap Jesus in his words. You might say, well, it seems innocent enough. You know, How so? Well, this was crafted actually as a political question. Okay, It's no coincidence that right after Jesus entered Perea that the Pharisees asked him this particular question. Perea was the domain and the jurisdiction of one King Herod Antipas. Do you guys remember studying him at all? No? <laughs> Do you guys remember? Well, let me refresh your memory. He was the one who imprisoned and later executed John the Baptist. Remember when we studied about John and the depression that he faced, right? He executed John the Baptist in the dungeon, dungeon of Machaerus that was located right there in Perea. And so let me further refresh your memory. Okay, King Herod Antipas was already married to the daughter of an Arabian king. So while en route to Rome in 29 AD, he became infatuated with Herodias, his brother Philip's uh, wife. 
Do you remember that? And so Herod stole her away from his brother Philip. He divorced his wife. Herodias divorced Philip. And now Herod, Antipas, and Herodias married each other. Do you remember this story? It's, it's been a long time back, okay? Well, John the Baptist publicly condemns this. In Matthew 14 and verse 4, For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. It is not lawful for you to have divorced your wife for this reason and married Herodias. These are the exact same words the Pharisees are using in their question. It is, not, is, it not law, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? The word not lawful means not right in God's eyes, right? This divorce was surely sin. It was adultery. You see what the Pharisees are doing? The Pharisees want to trap Jesus in a political snare. They want Jesus to say something that they can use against him. And if they, can't get, if they can get Jesus to publicly denounce divorce for any reason as unlawful, especially in this area of Perea, they can associate him with John the Baptist. I mean, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin, as it were, already. And so they would like, just like they saw with John the Baptist, for him to be put in prison, right? For him maybe even to be executed. That way they can get rid of Jesus by destroying him. Now also, they uh, craft this as a popular question. Divorce was very common in Israel. It was culturally accepted. It was widely practiced in the Jewish world. As a matter of fact, the majority of Pharisees were leaders in divorce. Not only by what they taught, but also by their example. They were constantly and continuously divorcing their wives, and they were teaching others in the Jewish community that they could for any and for every reason. Now, you might be shocked at that, right? I mean, knowing what you know, we know about divorce and knowing how we feel about divorce, why is it that they did this? What was their basis? Well, it was actually the influence of one man. If we could put that slide up. It was Hillel the Elder. How many of you, raise your hands if you know who Hillel the Elder is. Okay, I'm going to be a history nerd a little bit, okay? But this is going to help us a little bit, okay? He lived in the first century, from 31 B.C. to 980, roughly, okay? And it's no exaggeration to say that he was and is the most important figure in rabbinic tradition. So Hillel was the greatest Pharisee in Israel's history. During the first century, he was made the Nasi, which means the supreme leader, religious leader in Israel. That means that Hillel managed all religious rulings and all the religious affairs in Israel for 22 years until his death. He was the most influential rabbinic leader. He was so influential that even after his death, it was ruled by uh, the Jewish religious establishment that his direct descendants would rule as Nasi, and they did for 450 years. So imagine from the first century, 450 years, it was always ruled and reigned by one of uh, Hillel's descendants. It was because of Hillel, okay? So in the Jewish world, Hillel was a spiritual giant. Uh, his eulogy went like this. In this world, who is more pious than Hillel? Who is more humble than Hillel? Who is wiser than Hillel? He was among you the one who had the divine presence rest upon him, as was with Moses. This generation was not worthy of him. As a matter of fact, the Jewish rabbis made a statement, and it's even kind of set to this day, in this life, God meant for the Jews to follow the teachings of Hillel the elder. 
So if you live in this life and you're a Jew, it is uh, very much God's will that you follow the teachings of Hillel, okay? Now, why am I geeking out over this guy that none of you know about at all, okay? Why am I talking about this? Because Hillel taught that a man could divorce his wife for any and every reason, okay? If his wife were quarrelsome or nagging, which wives tend to be sometimes, right? You could divorce her. If she were found in public talking to another man, you could divorce her. If she spoke disrespectfully to your parents, to a husband's parents, that's grounds for divorce. If your wife burned or ruined your dinner, you could divorce her. Anything Hillel said that was deeply displeasing to the husband, all that that man had to do was hand her a certificate of divorce saying, let this be from me, your writ of divorce, your letter of dismissal, your deed of liberation, that you may marry whatever man you will, and you could send her away, okay? You see, the Pharisees want to trap Jesus in a cultural snare. They want to put him at odds with the popular prevailing culture of the day. If they can get Jesus to publicly denounce divorce for any reason as unlawful, they can present Jesus as an intolerant, closed-minded teacher. They can discredit him as a renegade rabbi, an interloper outside the Masorah, the traditions of Rabbi Hillel. And so what they do, if they couldn't kill him, right, is they wanted to undermine his credibility, to devastate the popularity that he had with the people. So knowing this, okay, what was Jesus' answer to the political climate and popular culture of his day? And here's the answer. Let's look at it. Verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied. Jesus' answer was to take them to God's word. You see, he confronts the political view of Herod and the popular view of Hillel with the authority of the word of God. See, Jesus doesn't care about the political fallout, nor does he concern himself with popular opinion. He cares only about what the Father says. And that could be so important in our generation because we're tempted to focus heavily on one of these two things as Christians. We see the political climate around us, and we, we have to say that tensions are very high, and there's such strong optimism on, uh, optimism, activism, excuse me, on all sides, okay? I'm not trying to make this a Democrat or Republican thing. On all sides, we see activism happening. And so what we're tempted to do is we're tempted to kowtow to, God, to godlessness. We're tempted to capitulate to the ungodly ideas that are prevalent in this political climate that we have. Not only that, but there's also a popular culture that is very unpopular if you hold to a Christian ideology. The views that we hold seem, in this culture, bigoted or narrow-minded or, at best, backward and out of, out of touch. And so we're tempted to conform to our culture. We're tempted to give in to the spirit of the age. And Jesus shows us what discipleship is. It's not for us as disciples to water down God's intentions, to make it more palatable so that we can appear better in the eyes of the world. As disciples, the Bible says, we need to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him. Can I get an amen? amen. Disciples or discipleship is caring about what the Father says what the Word of God says. And as Christians, we're called not to look around us, we're called to look at the Word of God, to focus on it, and to live by it. 
even if it's not culturally popular or politically correct. And I want you to notice what Jesus says here. Uh, let's look at it. Verse 4, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Verse 6, so they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. See, Jesus doesn't answer them by their customs or their culture or their traditions. Jesus transcends all of that and takes them back to the word of God. And he takes them all the way back to God's original intention for marriage. Their question is on divorce. He answers by Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 4 on marriage. And here's the three points that he gives. Marriage was God's idea from the start. Verse 4, at the beginning, the creator made them. You see, marriage is not a sociological convention. It's not a cultural innovation, right? Marriage is the divine institution that has been created by God. It's a God thing. Number two, marriage was created to complete a man and a woman. Verse 5, for this reason, marriage is when two people do three particular things, okay? And it's a process, if we can put that up. The first is to leave. That means to abandon any other relationship that interferes with the commitment that you are making to your spouse in marriage. You know, he gives the, uh, Jesus gives the, um, the, the, the phrase to leave your father and mother. That's given because actually your mom and dad are the closest and strongest tie that a single person has. And so this implies that as you leave or abandon, in a sense, your father and mother, all lesser ties must be abandoned as well. That doesn't mean we don't honor them. That doesn't mean that we don't love our parents. The Bible tells us to do that. But it tells us that we are leaving, right, something from the past, and we're progressing to something else. So in marriage, we ask, what do I have to leave? Maybe I have to leave the financial ties that I have with my parents. Maybe I have to leave the emotional ties that I have with a particular friend. Maybe I have to leave a particular thing that I participated as a single person, right? But I no longer can do this. It is the idea of leaving. And then we are to cleave. I know that the NIV uses the word united, but I like the old word cleave because that's what it's talking about. It literally means to adhere to. It has the idea of glue. And they had glue back then in the ancient world, okay? <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever used crazy glue, or I guess there's a stronger glue called Gorilla Glue, where accidentally you got your fingers, you know, adhered to, and it's so hard <clears throat> to uh, separate it, right? Well, that's the idea. The word to <clears throat> leaving has to do with everything that was already there, the past uh, systems and expectations and habits, and we are to cleave to be glued to our, uh, our mate. It has to do with evaluating every new thing that is coming into this relationship. So in marriage, we ask, will this bring me closer to my spouse? How will this move me toward that person? How will this, will this thing hinder or hurt our intimacy? Will this thing foster and grow our intimacy? See, we ask those questions. Now, we leave and we cleave for the purpose of weave or weaving, okay? The goal of marriage is oneness. The two will become one flesh. It means that in marriage, a couple weaves their lives together in such a way that their hopes and their dreams and their goals and their responsibilities, the sacrifices, even the failures 
And the successes are experienced together, are shared together, not as two, but as one. The Bible gives us an idea that marriage is an amalgamation of a man and a woman, that he is called to be joined, okay? And that's a beautiful thing. <clears throat> Let me share with you um, our wedding picture, okay? That is an amazing picture. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I remember those days, okay? My, well, no, 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 no. Go back, go. Yeah, that, that's the one, okay? That's the one. <laughs> I remember when we got married. It was uh, 14 years ago. We were younger back then, and I remember, remember I told you, I remember uh, sharing this with you publicly, that uh, when I met Joanne, it was love at first sight, and it really was. I knew that I was going to marry that person, and I told her I loved her on the first date. Remember I told you that? Which is pretty, she got freaked out by it, but, but I knew, okay? And so I told her that I loved her on the first date. So when we got married, okay, on that day, I couldn't wait for the honeymoon, right? And let me show the next picture, okay? This is me carrying her across the threshold of the hotel, okay? So I was all ready, and you can tell I'm all smiles. I'm, I'm so happy. And I was so excited for our wedding night, okay? I was feeling romantic. I was feeling like, oh, this is going to be awesome, you know, that I get to spend this time with my wife. And I was so excited. Uh, and let me show this picture, too. I actually, we had Latin guitarists, because Latin guitarists are the most romantic, right? That... Spanish music, the Spanish words are just oh, so beautiful, right? And so uh, we, I had them uh, actually do some songs because I was so excited, right? I was really getting ready for that, you know, wedding night. And we were playing these romantic, beautiful love songs. And so we did that, and I'll never forget this. After our friends went away and after, you know, the, uh, the guitarist went away and we were alone, and here I am, you know, I'm like really excited. She starts crying. And boy, it was such, I mean... It was a shock to me because she started crying, and she started saying, oh, I miss my mom and dad. That's not what I wanted to hear, okay? But that's what she's saying. I miss my mom and dad. And so I remember just she, her sitting in one area of, of the hotel room, and I'm sitting on the other area of the hotel room, and I'm like, what is going on? This isn't what I, you know, what I pictured. But you know that whole night, right? You know, she was sobbing, and she was, she was you know, we were uh, on the same bed, but I was, uh, you know, face toward one end, she was face toward another, and she kept talking about, oh, everything is changing. Every, you know, and she was actually mourning, right, her parents. She was mourning the life that she had. Now, looking back at it, and by the way, our honeymoon after that was pretty amazing, okay? It really was, but let me say this. Looking back at it, you know, uh, I realized, wow, you know, what kind of woman I married? Just a wonderful, wonderful woman who knew what it was to leave, to cleave, and to weave. I could only think of the wedding night. Here she's thinking of things that were greater. And you know, it's been such a wonderful, wonderful experience for the rest of our lives to know that we are progressing toward oneness. That marriage was designed to be a permanent thing, okay? I need to stop there. I know there's so much more in this passage because we could talk about what divorce is, what singleness and celibacy is, right? You may have questions like, you know, under what circumstances does the Bible allow for divorce? You know, uh, if I'm called to be single, what does that look like? And uh, I won't be able to get into that. I just want to kind of focus our hearts and our minds on this particular thing, that Jesus calls our attention, right, to the idea of marriage, being so important in our lives. And why is that? Because the institution of marriage, the, uh, uh, the institution of family, 
has, you know, spiritually been attacked. And we see all kinds of issues and problems as a result of that. If we could just go back to the Word of God and we could say this is God's intention and focus on that, boy, it would help us in this world as we live as lights for Him. Amen? Amen. Let's uh, invite Pastor Wilson to come up.